This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to Equity Mates Investing, the podcast where we explore what's possible in the world of investing. My name is Bryce, and today we have an uncovered episode where we unpack a company that doesn't get as much analyst attention to chat through it all. As always, is my equity buddy, Ren. How are you? Bryce, I'm good. I'm very excited for this episode. Our first uncovered episode for 2024, and God, is it a fascinating company. The company that we're looking at today is Amira. The ASX ticker is EMD. Yeah. I'd never heard about this company before uh, until we started looking at it for this episode. It is on the cutting edge of psychedelic assisted therapies, mm. bringing, you know, new forms of uh, therapy. They, they were working on CBD, mm. so from marijuana when it was first uh, rescheduled and allowed in Australia. And now they're looking at other therapies like MDMA therapy, psilocybin therapy. Um, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. What I found interesting and a bit of a light bulb moment for me during this interview, and this is probably going to sound quite dumb, but whenever I've thought about these therapies, I've always thought of them as just you take the psychedelic and kind of, you know, it just helps alleviate and whatnot but it I I didn't kind of put the two and two together that you take it and then have an intense therapy session (laughs) I thought it was just like you microdose and over time you just kind of loosen up a bit <laughs> well, and I, I know this sounds disingenuous, but or whatever, but like, no, 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 it's, I, I like, didn't, it's fair I did, enough. And, I'm sure. and so, the other part, the other half of it for me is now like it's the cutting edge of psychedelic uh, assisted therapy, but the, the therapies, the, the quality of the therapists and whatnot is such a big part of this yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, well, just and I imagine even just the availability, just the availability, the, and yeah, yeah, it's like, um, so anyway, a bit of a light bulb moment for me. Well, luckily, really it's not, it. it's luckily, it's not Bryce and I that will be taking <laughs> you through this company. We're actually going to be joined by Michael Winlow, who's the managing director of Emura, and uh, he's going to take us through both what's happening with the company itself, but then more broadly, what's happening with, you know, the research into these therapies and the, I guess, the legal and regulatory status of these therapies in Australia and uh, what's happening around the world as well. So a really fascinating, I guess, both company deep dive and industry deep dive. Now, before we get to Michael, uh, just a quick reminder that the Equity Mates Community Survey is live. Uh, it's your chance to help shape the future of Equity Mates and win $500 doing it. We want to know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear more of, what you think we should stop. Yeah. If you enjoy these uncovered episodes, if you want to hear more of a different type of content, if you have a particular company you want us to look at for yeah. Uncovered, the community survey is your chance to have your voice heard. It really does help shape the direction of our content. It it led to the change in our content schedule for yeah. 2024. Yeah. So uh, the link is in the show notes. It would be a great help if you could spend the time to fill it out. Nice. Well, this is also not a buy, hold or sell recommendation and any information on this show is for entertainment and education purposes only. Any advice is general. But Ren, with that said, let's bring in Michael and hear about Amiria. 
Well, Michael, welcome to Equity Mates. It's great to be here. Yeah, good to see you guys. So the majority of our audience will know of the drugs that we're talking about today, but not in the context that we're discussing them. So can you introduce us to psychedelic assisted therapies? Absolutely. Let's not make any assumptions about your audience's uh, <laughs> we experience here. Yeah. We're, we're, we're not we're, sure we're if they'll be personally familiar uh, with, but you yeah, know, they would have heard about them. Yeah, they would have heard. Yeah, definitely. Yes, they're uh, obviously provocative drugs. These are what we're talking about here is uh, uh, loosely referred to as the psychedelic medications, but they go by other names in the street as well as they're, as they've been outlawed uh, drugs for many decades. So, um, we're referring to about to MDMA or otherwise you know, known as ecstasy, although there are some really important differences between the medical grade uh, MDMA that, we're t- that we use in, in our therapy settings versus you know, that which we, you might obtain on the street, which is uh, often mislabeled uh, as, as MDMA, uh, often cut with other drugs. So short public service announcement there, uh, don't get your medicine. <laughs> the other compound here we talk about is psilocybin, which is the active hallucinogenic compound in magic mushrooms, which is... I guess the other the other street name here, and so loosely we talk about these as psychedelic drugs. Psychedelic meaning kind of mind manifesting, kind of a, it was a, a word coined uh, in the '60s uh, for these kinds of drugs. They have very profound changes of consciousness and and, and awareness. They uh, can uh, create hallucinations, which is distortions of reality. That's you know, typically with with drugs like psilocybin. MDMA, however, even though it does get classed as a psychedelic, is not a traditional psychedelic in that it doesn't create distortions of reality or changes of perception. Uh, one remains pretty lucid on MDMA, but you get these very, very strong feelings of uh, compassion, connectedness to others. Uh, there's euphoria associated with MDMA as well, uh, decreased uh, defensiveness. And these qualities of these drugs, they're, they're very unique, they're very potent, and uh, they're starting to capture uh, the attention of the medical community because they're being used in these therapeutic contexts where we leverage these profound changes of, of mental state to support psychotherapy with patients with severe mental health il- illness. And, uh, and that's where these drugs are starting to, uh, I guess, see a comeback and, and um, starting to, you know, we're starting to see some really profound and positive shifts. We're really looking forward to getting into some of uh, that research and where um, you know psychedelic assisted therapies are being shown to to have an effect. Before mm. we do, we'd love to take a step back and just ask a little bit about your story, I guess, and the story of Amira. How did you come to work in this area, and uh, what was Amira's founding story? Yeah. So I, I was trained as a medical doctor and uh, worked for a few years as, as a clinician. Uh, I come from a medical family where my father's a doctor, has been a GP out in the country and saw some pretty wild uh, medicine out here in the West, uh, in the rural West Australia. Uh, and so I was always really drawn to healthcare. That was always going to be my, my focus of my career. But I guess early on, I started to see opportunities for the impact that entrepreneurship and innovation can have in healthcare. So it wasn't about directly treating patients, but about you know coming up with innovations or new ways of doing things. And so uh, uh, that uh, took me on a journey through some startups. Uh, eventually, I completed my MBA uh, in the US and I stayed in America. I joined a healthcare company uh, on the tech side of things, a company called Palantir, which is a, a big data company. They had a very, very small healthcare team. In fact, we were the founding five team when I joined. Uh, that's now a big part of their their business. But that really gave me a deep appreciation for the impact that clinical data can have in helping, you know, complex business challenges, particularly in healthcare across drug development uh, and care delivery. Eventually, I returned back to Australia into the CEO role of a clinical trial organization, a not-for-profit here in Perth that does a lot of 
phase one trials in cancer and, uh, and in healthy volunteer studies as well. And it was there that I started to put all the, intersect my, my career journey together in, in a more neat fashion where suddenly the data side of things made real sense. We started to digitize what we're doing on the trial side. Obviously, the, in, in trial land, your product is clinical data. In healthcare service delivery, you know, what you're striving for is, is good clinical outcomes, but you're not, you're not paying a huge amount of attention to get, getting good data. It's about service delivery. And, you know, the Amiria journey was really trying to bridge those two worlds to say, well, in healthcare, we do a great job caring for patients, but we don't do a great job learning about the experience of every patient. Over in clinical trial land, we do a great job collecting data for patients, but we're not really making our goal to get these patients better. We're trying to answer a question, perform some research. And so Amiria's mission was really to sit in between those worlds where we have clinical services, where we're actually inviting every patient to be part of an ongoing you know, clinical study, for want of a better word, where we're collecting rich data on these patients, uh, we're paying attention to many different things, and we're getting educated and we're getting knowledge about what's working and what's not working. And this is the perfect forum for evaluating promising new treatments that appear to have a big role to play, but for which the evidence is lacking. And so uh, we saw an opportunity to really you know, set up a service for recently rescheduled medications. And our first uh, forum was for the medicinal cannabis products that came out. And of course, more recently, we've been preparing for this rescheduling of the psychedelic-assisted medications as well uh, for, for the same question, for the same reason. And so what was the response from the likes of friends and family, even the ASX, potential investors, when you started <laughs> going out to pitch the idea of working on, you know, building a company that is uh, sort of centered around psychedelic assisted therapies? Yeah, well, well uh, caution from both groups uh, and, 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 and some raised eyebrows. I mean, um, the, the person I most, I guess, wanted the opinion of was my father being this mainstream established, you know, clinician. But he'd been in the system long enough and seen enough to have just a broad sort of, you know, scepticism about, you know, traditional medicine anyway, obviously, um, you know, particularly on the mental health side. We haven't seen a huge amount of progress. So, you know, anything that looked potentially promising seemed right to him. And of course, we were trying to learn what was working and what wasn't, and that was always our, our bias. Um, and so um, I think, you know, we had, had credibility from that you know, approach. Uh, so he was, he was supportive. And so I think with him, his encouragement uh, didn't really matter what anyone else was saying uh, <laughs> on the other side. The ASX were, uh, I guess, also suitably cautious. They wanted to see real evidence of a real business. You know, this couldn't just be an idea on paper. So that's, you know, we had to go ahead and set up clinics and start treating patients and hiring doctors and show that we were a real service uh, first. So we did that uh, and that got us through the door and we, then we were able to list uh, right before COVID, uh, which made things interesting. But um uh, we've persevered and on, on doing great work at the moment. So Amira was founded in late 2018, mm-hmm. listed, as you said, just before COVID in 2020 and what well, now we're in 2024. So it's been five or six years. And in, in that time, there's been some pretty incredible research on psychedelic assisted therapies. Mm-hmm. So can you take us through what some of the last few years has brought us in terms of studies and new research and and I guess where we are now in terms of understanding this whole new category of medicine yeah look we're, we're on the precipice of a, of, a, of a really a revolutionary new shift i believe and australia in many ways is leading the world with the recent very key decision to reschedule psilocybin and mdma to allow these compounds to be prescribed medications by suitably qualified psychiatrists 
for treatment-resistant depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, respectively. They, major regulators reevaluate their position on these drugs. These were previously illegal, outlawed you know, medications. You would go to jail if you touched them uh, or sold them in, in any way. And now, uh, you know, what a shift that these are now being recognized as having therapeutic potential and being rescheduled. And, and so regulators will do this from time to time with different drugs if they can be convinced that there is a therapeutic benefit uh, for these drugs. And so we actually have drugs like cocaine in Schedule 8 and ketamine and Ibogaine uh, sitting as controlled medications where as long as, you know, they're in the hands of the appropriately trained and qualified, you know, specialists and given to patients, you know, with the right um, screening in place, uh, there is a role for these drugs. And so uh, regulators are making these shifts on the back of great evidence that's been presented around the world. And probably the two most well-studied compounds, of course, MDMA for PTSD, which has now gone through two phase three trials. A phase three trial is the gold standard, you know, clinical trial. It's multi-site, it's lots of patients, it's placebo controlled uh, as, as much as you can with these drugs. And, uh, and what we saw you know, repeated on two separate studies was this profound, you know, improvement in symptoms for patients with PTSD. More than two thirds of patients effectively going into a, a remission uh, from their condition. And from the earlier phase two studies, we, the, the durability appears to last at least for 12 months. That's a very, very compelling outcome, particularly in the background of a, of a rising you know, problem where the current treatments you know, have an efficacy rate of you know, 50% or so for, for, for most patients. So a huge amount of interest and excitement to see whether we can translate those clinical results uh, into real practice. Psilocybin is probably, you know, as, as just a step behind, it's done some really great phase two trials. It's going into phase three. And after a single dose of, with supportive psychotherapy, you know, we're seeing half, uh, 50% improvement in depression scores uh, for patients with severe treatment resistant depression, which is great. And that appears to last out to 12 weeks after just a single dose. So some important shifts are happening uh, in these patients facilitated by the medication and the support of the psychotherapy. And so um, now there's a, you know, a huge amount of confidence if those results can continue to be revealed, then these drugs will naturally make their way through to approvals. I feel that that's uh, inevitable. And then they'll become part of the toolkit of most clinicians. And then the big question will be, well, how do we deliver these drugs in, into our health system? And then what comes mm. next? And that's uh, the question that we're really focused on. When we were researching for this interview, it's just a, a whole world that I, I wasn't really aware of. Let's um let's yeah. drill down on PTSD, um, post traumatic stress disorder, because mm -hmm. I think that really illustrates where some of these therapies are really emerging. And speaking personally, I had no idea about one the scale of the challenge with PTSD, and two, I guess the the challenge with finding effective treatments. So I think. You know, for people who are mm. listening to this interview skeptically about the use cases for these new therapies, I think it's a it's a good illustration of of something. So, let's start with just the scale of the challenge of PTSD. Um, how widespread is it? How how common is PTSD? I guess it might be helpful to start with just a, a simple definition. You know, PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder, is this chronic, debilitating, you know, mental health challenge where you've got symptoms of restlessness, hypersensitivity, agitation. It's an anxiety type condition that can arise either after exposure to, to a single traumatic event or perhaps chronic exposure to uh, you know, certain circumstances of, of neglect or, or, or chronic abuse. And so uh, one, one just has this heightened fear response that for most of us we can manage, but for patients with PTSD, they're very activated. They're kind of on edge 
all the time. And it actually affects up to 6% of the adult population. And, and that number means that we have nearly a million uh, individuals with PTSD in Australia, uh, or you know, 30 million plus uh, in, in the US, for example. So it it's actually affects a huge number of people. Obviously, a much higher incidence in first responders and you know, policemen, ambulance officers, uh, uh, firemen, people who go go forward when the rest of us go back, you know, uh, and, and obviously servicemen as well. And um, it has a reasonably high rate of treatment resistant. There's no single drug that's approved for PTSD. So you have to manage the symptoms. You give people antidepressants, you put them through, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and so for, you know, some numbers, about 50% of patients don't typically get a great response from their standard therapy. And so, um, you know, you, you're now talking about, you know, half a million people with a condition that, uh, you know, that, that, that's affecting their lives in, in a negative way, not just for the individual, but these people can often not hold a job or they become an imposition to their family and friends as well. So the, you know, the, the psychosocial burden is actually quite, quite significant. Mm. Yeah. That, 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 um, challenge of finding effective treatments and, and only all, all of those treatments together are only being effective for 50% of the patients is, is pretty, um, you know, astonishing. Uh, certainly not something I, I was aware of. So then, I guess in comes these psychedelic-assisted therapies, and we've seen a number of clinical trials. Correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of them coming out of the US. That's right. Yeah. Let, let's focus on the stage three trials. What have we learnt from those trials? And most importantly, I guess, how have the results from those trials compared to the common treatments that are available today? Yeah. So uh, we've learned a couple of things. I guess we, we haven't yet had a chance to describe how, how it is that these treatments are typically taken or administered. And that's, that's kind of really important here as well in that the emphasis, we, we're excited about the drugs because they are these, uh, you know, because of their history, because of what they do. Uh, but the, the qualities that make these drugs, you know, attractive party drugs actually make them really powerful adjuncts for psychotherapy. So MDMA's case, it has this really unique feature of boost, you know, dramatically increasing release of serotonin, which is connected to feelings of trust and 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 connectedness with it, with each other. Uh, it releases dopamine, which is uh, you know, a compound neurotransmitter related to euphoria and, and feeling good. And then noradrenaline, which is that activation compound involved in fight or flight. So that's where you got the you got the energy with MDMA. But these qualities in 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 the context of uh, psychotherapy allow a patient to work through, you know, really challenging material in a much more calm state of mind with less of the fear response, with less defensiveness. They can be a bit more compassionate to themselves, to the circumstances, and it allows the psychotherapy to be really effective, effectively unsticking these patients in the therapy context. And so it's really important that this is intensive psychotherapy up to six to eight hours in a single dosing session where the medication is really opening up uh, the content and helping the individual work through their issues. So for MDMA, what's been how this has worked is people have a pre preparation session with their therapist, and they, you know, they, they set an intention. They have these long dosing sessions where they're in the presence of two therapists for six to eight hours. Uh, they have some follow up integration sessions we call them with the therapist where they work through, you know, the content of those intense dosing sessions. And the studies have shown that three sessions, three dosing sessions with those intervening preparations and integrations can lead to this incredible uh, outcome where two thirds of patients have a full remission and 80% will have a, a clinically significant improvement uh, in their symptoms. And so we've learned 
a couple of things we've learned that you know that, that you can't do that the psychotherapy appears very important that the drugs are there to facilitate psychotherapy that it's important to uh to i guess give the psychotherapy its prominence in this therapeutic uh, modality but we're learning that the the safety is is exceptional certainly if you you, you screen patients carefully there, there are some exclusions for mdma cardiovascular issues need to be looked at and ideally we're not uh taking people with um uh, psychosis as well so there are some exclusions but generally the patient is very very well tolerated uh, very few adverse events uh, for those who are carefully screened and and remarkable progress for, through therapy psilocybin is a little bit different in that it's um it's usually a single dose you have a, an intensive hallucinogenic experience at the doses which appear therapeutic uh you lose sense of self uh and and and, and time and place and so the content is a lot more abstract uh, and so, um, uh, you know, the therapist really there to keep you uh, safe in those dosing sessions and then work through, you know, any sort of key insights that you may have in the following uh, days uh, through through the integration work uh, as well. So we're learning this is a really different way of doing therapy. Peer is very effective and very safe. And so now the big questions are, well, how can we deliver this, you know, in a real world setting? And how can we make it affordable and, and scalable? Because... You know, a key thing that we think about, it's one thing to do a single session. You know, it's one thing to build the prototype. It's another thing to build the factory that can make make your uh, innovation scale. And so it's one thing to do one session, but how do we do a thousand sessions? How do we do 10,000? And that's uh, something that we think we pay a lot of attention to. What, if any, have been some of the side effects from those sessions and like how, what's the intensity or the cadence in which you could do two or three, six to eight hour sessions on of the of the mdma yeah so we normally for a single patient cadence if you're talking about how frequently we have somebody you know go through a dosing session the phase three trials typically space them out about a month apart okay but there's some evidence that anywhere between two to four weeks uh, is probably adequate and and it may be different for different people you need to give individuals time for the window of of opportunity to open up. There's a, there, there are changes that take place in the brain. There's increased plasticity, which appears to be you know, in effect for at least seven days after both MDMA and, and psilocybin. And so you've got some real opportunity to try and learn new behaviors and develop new habits uh, and put to action uh, some of the, you know, the insights that you might've might have learned or had through the dosing session. So it's important to space them out. You wouldn't whack them all together a day, but you know, one after the other. Psilocybin sessions can be, you know, challenging for people. It's not necessarily going to be a happy time. And so we if patients aren't in a rush to go back into that headspace. Uh, and so again, most of the studies have just evaluated a single dose, but there may be some models where people are having two doses, again, probably spaced out about a month. But this isn't a drug that you take every day. This isn't a drug that you have, you know, uh, multiple days per week. Uh, these are intense sessions that we space apart, you know, give the mind a chance to breathe, uh, people to work with the content that they've surfaced. Mm. The ultimate outcome here is for people to adopt a new way of thinking about themselves and the world and hopefully adopt more you know, positive and, and, and worthwhile behaviours. Yeah, nice. So let's turn to Amiri's future mm-hmm. and uh, with the Australian government rescheduling psychedelic-assisted therapies as controlled medicines, this has obviously opened the door for companies like Amiria. So how have you responded? What's How are you, I guess, taking this opportunity? Yeah. So uh, we've been preparing for this for a while. We've had uh, experience with rescheduled drugs, with the, you know, I guess with the cannabinoids. We, you know, a majority of our patients are actually have always been mental health patients. We have done a couple of things. We've broadened our clinical service footprint. So we now have uh, a, a psychological trauma care focused 
clinical service with specialists, psychiatrists, supportive counsellors, therapists, uh, social workers, occupational health therapists as well, um, mental health nurses. We have a really, really broad team. Uh, and integrating that with our Emerald Clinic service, which has been GP-led, uh, we now have these mental health GPs as well. So we really have the full spectrum of care. We think that's really important for providing these therapies. We've got the full wraparound kind of services uh, to support these patients before, during, and after, which is really important. So we're very much on the front line delivering these therapies. We have all of the regulatory approvals in place, and we've also secured uh, the drug supply, which is was quite challenging. Uh, you know, you, again, you don't go to your uh, corner corner man for these <laughs> medications. You have to go to special, qualified, you know, pharmaceutical grade you know, manufacturers of, of, of these treatments. Um, and so we have all of that in place, as well as a, a trained team. Uh, we've been running clinical trials for some months now, so we have a lot of hands-on experience in how to move these patients through, how to select them, and, and obviously what it's like to provide the care for them. So we think about two really important things. This is drug-assisted therapy. So the future is going to be you know, advancements in the drug development side. MDMA and psilocybin won't be the last psychedelic drugs we you know that that have a role to play here there'll be improvements we'll be looking at things can we shorten the sessions can we improve the safety profile and broaden uh, the patient population who are eligible for these uh, treatments so we're really interested in drug innovation we have a program uh, in that field uh, with the university of western australia here we're looking at making changes to mdma to see whether we can uh, you know create some of these uh, different different applications and we're also interested in the therapy side so we know that the hands-on is hard this is a very expensive intensive type of you know clinical intervention interventional psychiatry people in psychiatry aren't accustomed to this counselors you know therapists and psychiatrists don't typically cohabitate uh, in the same clinic uh, it's un- that's actually unusual and so how do we create a space where you know these these individuals can work together and that we can support facilitation of this and so i think there's going to be a lot of innovation in the care delivery side as well. And we think about making adjustments to the way we deliver this so that it can scale, can be more cost effective. Um, and so, you know, people, you know, challenge us for being involved in both of these worlds, but then the pushback is, well, this is the future. It is drug assisted therapy and we, we see opportunities to innovate along both dimensions. It's so fascinating and there's so many follow-ups I want to ask around the health side of it and the drug development side of it, but Mm -hmm. uh, I'm mindful of the time and I am mindful that we are an investing podcast here. So let's, let's move to the financial side of it. When it's such an early stage of the market, just being rescheduled and just sort of developing, I imagine it can be quite hard to forecast and forecast accurately about what's to come. So I think, you know, as a the, as a company leader now, how do you think about the economics of the market, but probably more importantly, the economics of your business? What are the financial metrics you're watching the most closely and how are you sort of assessing health and success financially at this stage? Yeah. Look, I think uh, at the foundation, there's a fairly simple business. We've got to be a really excellent clinical service uh, organization. We, we already you know, generate you know, revenues uh, you know, around a million dollars a year from the clinical services. That's before we've actually implemented anything new like MDMA-assisted therapy. And so we think about, well, how do we do this really efficiently? How do we make the best use of our staff and team and, and, and clinicians? Uh, and how do we, I guess, implement a service that can cover its costs? The truth is that this 
intervention needs to work well for the clinicians. They need to not lose money. They can't go backwards as much as we'd love them just to donate their time, you know, to bring the cost down. That's not going to happen at scale. So we, we need to find a way that they can get paid well to do this treatment. But we believe in the efficacy so much that if we can re- replay the results, the cost effectiveness is there. And now we have the, the winning combination, something that's better for patients, that works for clinicians, uh, that actually delivers really important health economics benefits to to the economy you know, to the to society uh, um, so uh, we're focused on setting up our clinics in a way that allows us to do you know get the throughput to a point where we can actually do this profitably and and uh, and, and safely deliver great impact have a repeatable model that we can pick up and take elsewhere either through our own or linear growth or we can work with partners uh, to, to get this going if we can pay attention to what's happening uh, with patients, track those outcomes. We're going to be in a really strong position to negotiate with payers and get adequate coverage for uh, for this treatment as well. Because I'll, I'll throw some other numbers at you. The average hospital admission in, in, in WA here is $2,200 a night. And the average stay is about 19 days. So very quickly, you're suddenly much more expensive than a, than a psychedelic assisted therapy treatment. And these patients, don't, you know, they don't necessarily get better after their 19 days in hospital. They're just burnt out or they just have contained the crisis. Uh, they go back to the community until they you know, are, are readmitted. So um, the current health system uh, dynamic is, you know, particularly for mental health, um, you know, is, 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 is imperfect. And so there is a, I don't think it'll take much for us to demonstrate you know, the, the, the cost effectiveness uh, of these treatments. And even though it's a new way of sort of paying for care, it's a new way of thinking about mental health sort of interventions, uh, I think the payers will be compelled and, and, and will engage. And then that obviously suddenly unlocks massive economic uh, potential for those services who are ready and prepared to um, to scale and grow into that mm. demand. Yeah, healthcare is always an interesting market because the player that is paying for the service often isn't the player that is receiving the service. And so you've got a few different people that you've got to convince. How how have the conversations yeah. with health insurance companies gone? Have they have they even started or is it too early in the process to yeah, yeah, they absolutely have started. In fact, healthcare is more broken than that. Usually, a market dynamic you got you know the buyer and the and the seller, but in in healthcare you got three people. The decision maker doesn't pay; mm. that's the doctor. The payer doesn't benefit; that's the health payer. And the patient who benefits doesn't pay or decide. <laughs> and so often, and so you've, you've, you the market dynamics do not work here. So you need to engage all three groups. So you you clearly need to be, as I mentioned, better for patients. Uh, you need to have really good data to, to engage the clinicians and give them a place they can come and practice this. There is no shortage of, of therapists and psychiatrists who want to get involved. They are frustrated with outcomes. They, 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 they're, they're this, it's a really stressful job being in psychiatry. So it's not uncommon for a psychiatrist really to get to about 500 patients and then close their books and then not not, not you know, and then they're, they're busy enough with those 500. And so, that, but we need many more than that. We've only got four and a half thousand private psychiatrists in Australia, but there's, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of, of patients who need who need better care. So uh, we create the conditions to allow those specialists and therapists to come and, come and work. Uh, and then the payer conversations have started. They are clearly looking on the outside in. So it's up to organizations like us to demonstrate that we can get close to the efficacy we've seen in those phase three trials. But they are driven by economics at the end of the day. And with a $50,000 hospital admission or a $30,000 treatment, or for that patient where everything has been tried and you've thrown the kitchen sink at them and they're still not getting better, then you almost have a moral obligation to try the next thing. And so I think we're going to see engagement from the payers, we will. And I think that's inevitable. And it's just a matter of demonstrating that we as an organisation have a consistent, repeatable you know, care model that they can get behind 
uh, to fund. Mm. Well, Michael, if you think about Emiria in 10 years' time, what does success look like? Yeah, I love that thought experiment because 10 years is quite a way yeah. <laughs> into the future. A lot can change and certainly didn't see the rescheduling of psychedelics coming. But look, I would love if we were, um, uh, you know, we, we had a network of clinical services around Australia, potentially around the world. We sort of networked, partnered, cooperating to advance mental health treatment and, and be an engine for innovation, a place where the very best new possible treatments are being evaluated alongside the gold standard of care. We have parables like this comparable in, in, in cancer where the, the latest best promising treatment is being put up against the current gold standard. I can see that happening in mental health as well. And I think that's gonna be new ways of, of working with patients and also new drug treatments. And, and we wanna be that center of excellence, that engine of innovation that kind of sets the um, you know precedent for how things could look uh, for, for others. Love it, Michael. Well, the, the scale of the challenge is big. Mental health is, you know, it's front of mind for people, but it's been, you know, decades of understudied and underinvested. And um, we're excited to, I guess, see what comes next on the journey and, and what new drugs come down the line. So uh, all the best with it. Good luck. And um, we'll be watching from afar. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for your questions. Thanks, Michael. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.